This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Rare disease centers at academic institutions are usually places that focus on early-stage research of faculty members. But the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine takes a multidimensional approach to address the needs of the rare disease community. In addition to conducting its own research, the center collaborates with both pharmaceutical companies and patient groups, makes grants to support external research, and helps patient groups and families find new researchers and helps guide them to develop essential tools to work on a specific disease. We spoke to Ashley Winslow, Senior Director of Portfolio Development at the Center, about its work, how it's evolved from its origins, and how it leverages the work it does through collaborations. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania, how it operates, and a push to do more to reach out to patients in different ways. Let's start with the center itself. How long has it been around, and what's the mandate? So we've been around since about 2011. Uh, We were founded by a generous uh, donation um, from a previous alumni or current alumni from the University of Pennsylvania who had a granddaughter with a rare disease. Um, originally, there was a focus on, on that rare disease itself, but then there was a recognition by that donor that there should be a broader remit, and there really was a need for anyone dealing with a rare disease to try to spur research forward. And that's really the focus of our center is... Um, to try to find ways to overcome the barriers and obstacles that rare disease face, whether it be with just understanding and basic research of the disease, trying to develop new therapeutics, or overcoming barriers in clinical development for those disorders. The center has been described as a first of its kind. Can can you explain what makes it unique? So I would say about 90% of our work, uh, maybe even more, is external facing. Uh, and that really means that we, we don't focus on the needs of the University of Pennsylvania community. They're an integral partner and, and um, they, they really help us thrive in our environment. But we're trying to serve the international rare disease community. Um, and that's everyone involved in it. That's patients. That's foundations, uh, biotech, it's pharma, clinicians, and researchers. We recognize that we need to work with all of these groups and bring them together in order to facilitate therapeutic development. So what we do is um, we do that through issuing grants, 
we do that through initiatives that try to leverage kind of platform technologies or technology that we can use across different diseases to overcome these obstacles. Um, and we do that through, we are a nonprofit entity. Um, we do that through this external engagement of the community. Um, we, our grants can be issued to anyone in the world. The majority of them are, are external to Penn. Uh, so we're, we're different in that we, we aren't doing research or bench research in-house necessarily. We're really facilitating the community uh, by being that integrator and, and, and being a group that tries to bring all of those people to the table early on um, in a number of different ways. It, it seems very unusual in that you're an academic center acting in what I'd say looks more like a, a rare disease foundation or advocacy group. Was that always the intent? Did it just evolve that way? I, I, we've gone through a few iterations, and I think uh, definitely an evolution. Um, I think there was an intent and in, in that motiva motivation and mission and what we wanted to achieve, which was to really get at the therapeutic development for rare diseases. Um, we did think that advocacy groups were out there that were really serving the needs of the community um, you know, and what that might look like from a day-to-day -day kind of dealing with symptoms and treatments and office visits and, and maybe advocacy in a legislative sense. What we wanted to fill the gap and we didn't see being filled was a need to really address therapeutic development uh, through research. And so I think there was that mission and vision early on. I think the execution is what has evolved. Um, and that's become, a, that's really come about by a close study of what's worked, what hasn't, and evolution of the models of working maybe with pharma and biotech, but also pushing the boundaries a little bit and saying, look, we need to share resources in these communities. Um, we can't just all start our own registries. We can't just all, um, it's such a small community of people. We need to recognize these clinicians and and, and hopefully pull them into, you know, more than one trial and share the learnings from each of those trials um, in each of those registries. So what we look at are models for trying to push the envelope a little bit differently. Um, and that's, that's shared resources, but also changing that economic model as well. And I, I think that's a little bit different than what's more commonly applied in uh, the bigger bucket diseases. So we look at things a little bit differently. It's taken us a while to figure out what works, and I think this will continue to be an evolution and a learning process as um, groups around us also change to that environment, but we're trying to really kind of get ahead of the curve on, on each of these topics. I thought we could take a, a programmatic approach to taking a deeper look and, and understanding of, of the work you do. Let's start with grants. One of the things I think is unusual for an academic-based institution that does research is that you make grants. What what kind of grants do you make, and, and who's eligible to apply? So we have uh, somewhere between maybe around 25 uh, different diseases that we issue grants for, somewhere between 25 and 30, um, depending on the year. Uh, so the main basis of our grant portfolio that we issue uh, is our million-dollar bike ride grants. And this is a, an event that we hold each year inviting about 25, uh, 20 to 25 different disease teams to host a bike team. And they're kind of tasked with 
if they can raise $20,000, we will match that dollar for dollar up to 50000 and issue a grant which is properly peer-reviewed and issued to the entire international community of academic researchers. Um, and this is this really, there's a lot of excitement around this because not all disease foundations have the ability to identify um, scientists and researchers interested in participating in that peer review process. So it's really exciting to be able to help those teams. Uh, but we also have a number of programs under what we call our programs of excellence. And this is, these are areas of focus for the center where we may have a bit more resources or, or there's a number of related disorders that are kind of falling under a common umbrella that we're using learnings and platforms across these diseases. Um, we're issuing, issuing an, an entire series of grants um, every year in the name of that disease. So the few that fall under that bucket, um, and those are all open to the international community. We do have a few more that are kind of platform or program development focused grants. And sometimes those are pen focused when we're trying to really um, help a group that has an important resource that we think is important to the community get their efforts up and running. Uh, but we have others that are external as well. So we, we have the, the programs of excellence. So the, the, that's to fund translational research. Is that correct? It's both early and basic research, but also translational as well. It can run the gamut. And, yeah. and we do have a few early clinical-looking programs that we fund as well. What are the areas of focus for the programs of excellence? So we have under um, pediatric epilepsy, we have a few diseases that fall in that bucket. Um, CDKL5 has a committed grant program. Um, RET and Angelman are two other programs where we're, we're looking at gene therapies for those specifically. Um, we have a, a lysosomal storage disorder suite of diseases that we work with and we've worked with for a number of years. Um, liver and metabolic disorder is another area that we're focused. I think ocular and uh, or maybe respiratory is the other one. Uh, so those are our primary um, areas at the moment and we're constantly looking and evaluating um, other areas that either relate and kind of fall under those programs or maybe a new program on their own. How do you decide what diseases to focus on? It's There's a lot of due diligence that we undertake in order to um, really figure out if we can make a difference. And that, that's kind of the, the value proposition. Is this an area that there's an unmet need, a substantial unmet need, and a lack of resources? Because if it is being addressed by other funding sources, we, you know, we'd, we'd rather kind of put our time and, and help direct resources where it's really, really needed. Um, but it's also trying to assess where we can add value. And that's, we have learnings in closely related disorders that we can kind of leverage into that space and build off of. Do we have people that we can, you know, network with? And, and we really do work through an international network of foundations and researchers that we can try to tap into to very quickly understand if, if, this, if there is a path forward. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily kind of formulaic, it's trying to get a feel for where we can have the most impact. You also have an international patient registries program. These are done collaboratively with patients. What's the goal of this program and, and how unusual is the role patients play in these registries the way you do them? One of the big barriers that we, we saw with uh, progression of rare diseases into the clinic, you'd have um, 
for example, pharma biotech that did have a real interest. They're developing a drug that had some real potential. Uh, but as soon as they started to approach the clinic, there's a lot of there's been a lot of angst around how you tap into the right clinicians, how you identify the patients early, and also engage them on what is relevant. And I think that's one of the the, the areas that has really shifted um, the past few years is a recognition in rare disease that patients and caregivers are sometimes the experts. Uh, it's not always the clinicians um, that know most. And we really have to tap into that, and that's becoming very valuable information. Um, so we see registries as a potential clinical development tool. It helps us gather information directly from patients and caregivers. It can help us gather information from clinicians as well. Um, it helps us identify where in the world people are, because you have to go to the patients in rare disease. You can't always just open up one clinical site and expect that you can roll enough people for a clinical trial. Uh, but it really becomes an important tool to kind of pivot off of to understand the disease better, to understand where people are, to understand what they're they're going through, um, and to really engage the community early in that clinical development process. We're not left out in the dark. And they understand what it is and the, the type of data that we need to understand early on in order to run a clinical trial. So. Um, we, with our patient registries, we spend a lot of time up front understanding what the needs are of the patient community, where past efforts have fallen short, and what they're asking for and need going forward. And we, we engage um, uh, patient communities around those initial discussions. We also then engage clinicians as well to make sure that we're capturing data that they can use. Um, and then we hope to engage industry as well to make sure that the data we're capturing from those different groups is also useful for clinical study design. The last program I wanted to ask you about was the Jumpstart program, which establishes a research agenda with patients and family groups. How, how does that work? So this, we're in the very early phases of launching Jumpstart. Uh, right now we have a query uh, tool on our website that you can go to and essentially just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, whether you're just a parent, um, or your full-fledged foundation and what your needs are, what, what you're kind of looking for. And we've had a few different inquiries. Um, some people are looking to be just matched with researchers. Some want a little bit more coaching on, on what resources are out there and how we might be able to help. We were really trying to have that program intersect with some of the strategic partnerships we're trying to form. So we think of, we often think of, um, research that foundations can help fund as potentially leading into translational programs and ideally new therapeutics. So it all becomes a bit of a pipeline. Um, some of the tools that are really important to think about up front are animal models. Um, is there a mouse model out there that is readily available to community of researchers that they can get a hold of? Um, and one of the things we, we have really partnered on is trying to identify a strategic partner in that space. So we work with Jackson Lab who can, there's not an animal out, animal model out there for that disorder, um, they'll work on, on making one and, and the costs are either free or greatly diminished. So that's one of the areas for Jumpstart program, we're trying to make those resources available to the foundation early on so they can really become an integral driver in trying to really attract researchers to the area. So that's, that's one example. We're working on a few other strategic partnerships um, to try to overcome some of the other barriers and make them available directly to foundations because they're just 
isn't there's not uh, that that same champion for these disorders um, as there is in, in, in more common diseases. It really is up to the foundations to drive these efforts. We're trying to make that as easy as possible, make resources available, and help um, educate and facilitate wherever we can on that process. The center appears to be very focused on collaborations, not just with patients, but with industry as well. How do you see collaborations leveraging the work you do? We have a lot of different, I guess, lines and, and areas of collaboration potential. Um, so some of it is just information sharing, it's letting a company know we're in a space and that we are here to potentially help them with their efforts. So there's there's programs that we, or I guess collaborations where we approach a company um, such as a registry and we, we're trying to look for, to build registries that are a bit more open access. Uh, it, it's a community-led. So when a company comes into the space, they don't have to build it on their own. We say, you know, we're in this space and we're looking for partners. We, we'd love for you to use the data, get interested, get engaged. Uh, we're looking for sponsorship to keep that as a sustainable effort. But if pharma leaves the space, that, that resource remains. It's not lost, which has happened, um, has traditionally happened in the past. Um, other times we're approached by biotech or pharma to see what we can help with. And then sometimes that's trying to identify promising new therapeutics. Uh, that we, we may see out there. Um, sometimes it's helping with these clinical development uh, barriers and obstacles. Uh, it takes on many, many different flavors, but industry really is a positive driver for new therapeutics, but sometimes bringing them together with the patient community, um, it, there's not always a roadmap for that. So that's what we're trying to provide is that roadmap to try to bring these groups together early and often. The center of appears to be doing more than just being a conduit for research with patients, but helping them become advocates as well. What are new initiatives are you, you building out at this time? I think our registry initiative is, is our newest kind of big area or push um, that we're trying to build out. We are looking at um, trying to make, I think one of the barriers is, is the path to diagnosis or that kind of odyssey that patients go through, and we want to help facilitate that. So we, we don't yet have an announcement around this. Um, it, we're just in the exploration phase for trying to identify partners, make sequencing more available to facilitate that process so we can get patients a diagnosis earlier um, where possible. And I think the other areas we're, we're looking at, uh, but we don't fully have spelled out, are trying to develop plans or education pieces around regulatory engagement and what that can look like and uh, how you engage the FDA or EMA. When is the right time? How do you do that? Do you do that, you know, at the point that there is, is a trial already being run or can you uh, do that earlier and, and really facilitate that process? And there's a strategy around that where, that we're exploring the best way to try to engage patient communities um, in that process in an effective way. World Rare Disease Day is coming up. What will the center be doing to acknowledge World Rare Disease Day this year? So Rare Disease Day is always the kickoff for a million-dollar bike ride uh, registration. So we get very excited. Um, we host a kind of a get-together for the rare disease community around that event. Um, we open registration for the event, which happens in uh, May. 
and we invite the bike ride community, we invite families, uh, the public, uh, the Philly and Penn communities, we encourage to participate as well. And it's really to come together to recognize the the day, what the community needs, what what they're looking for, you know, out of uh, all of these different aspects we talk to and really what the progress has been over the past year and kind of looking forward. So it's, it's a way to recognize where we are and the direction we're going. Ashley Winslow, Senior Director of Portfolio Development at the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. Ashley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.